If you're familiar with ancient Greek mythology, uh, maybe you've heard of the story of Narcissus. Uh, Narcissus was a beautiful young man. People loved to look at his beauty. And when he was a young man, a seer or a fortune teller actually told his mom that as long as Narcissus never saw himself, never looked upon himself, he would have a long and happy life. Well, one day Narcissus was out in the woods walking and he came across a pool of water and he saw his reflection in the water. And he loved the reflection so much that he began to stare at himself and he stared at himself so long that he actually wasted away because he never went and got food or water for himself. He wasted away because he just sat there looking at himself. How many of us waste away because we just look at ourselves. It's not a secret that pride is one of the most dangerous plagues for the human heart. After all, at the beginning of time, pride was the reason we fell away from God because we said we wanted to be like God. We wanted to be on the same level as God. Pride is one of the most dangerous plagues to the human heart. Pride will promise you everything, but will leave you with nothing. Last week, Shan started a new series called Finding Joy, and in Philippians chapter 1, we realized that joy is often found in community. There's a blessing to being together. There's, there's camaraderie and having a purpose uh, together, uh, but as we will see today, we're going to continue talking about joy, and we're also going to continue talking about community and how pride is an enemy to community, and what we're going to see today is the how. If community is so important and, and being together is so important to our joy, then how do we get that community and how do we get to unity? And that's what Paul's going to talk about. And before we get to some of the more recognizable verses in Philippians chapter 2, we need to spend some time at the beginning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's how he begins. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? any fellowship together in the Spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Paul begins this section of his letter by asking several questions. Is there encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there comfort in His love? And do you have fellowship in His Spirit? These are important questions for each of us to remember and reflect on. But if we were to boil it all down into one question, essentially what Paul is asking us is, do you benefit from knowing Christ? And while this isn't the main push of his message, this is a worthwhile practice for each of us to reflect on and think about this week. Do we benefit from knowing Christ? Is there comfort from his love? Do we experience fellowship in his spirit? Are we encouraged and, and has our hearts been transformed? But this is the question that he's asking. This is the question that he's framing. And as we continue to verse 2, we actually get to his main idea, to the thesis of what Paul wants us to understand. Here's how he, begin, how he continues. Then, he says, Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. All right, let's nerd out for just a little. Let's get down and nerdy for a little bit and break apart what Paul is actually saying. Paul is in the middle of an if-then statement. Maybe you're familiar with an if-then statement. They're, they're common in entry-level logic courses and in different classes in schools. But essentially, an, an if-then statement is a conditional statement. 
It, fr- it frames it with a hypothesis, if this, and then it concludes with a conclusion. Then this must be true. In other words, if this happens, then this happens. Let me give you some examples. I have a, a, uh, my dog's tennis ball here. If I drop this ball, then it will fall to the ground. You see, it falls to the ground. It is proving that if I drop it, it will fall. How about another one? If I eat too many Big Macs, then I will get fat, right? If I eat too many Big Macs, then I will get fat. I'm not from here originally, so I'm not a huge Patriots fan, but I can promise you, since I live here now, that if the Patriots ever get rid of Bill Belichick, then I will cheer for them. You see how this works? The second phrase reveals the action that is to happen based on the truth of the first phrase. And this is what Paul is doing. If you have encouragement from Christ, if you have comfort in his love, if you have fellowship in his spirit, and if your heart has been transformed, then make my joy complete by being unified, by being of one mind together. Let me put it into one if-then sentence for you. If you benefit from knowing Christ, then be unified in Christ. This is Paul's main push. If you benefit from knowing Christ, then be unified in Christ. And as we look at these next verses, remember that this is Paul's goal. This is where he's driving each of us to. This is where he's driving his original audience to. He wants them to be unified, to be together, and have the same mind concerning Christ Jesus. See, for Paul, joy is found when we cut out the bickering, we cut out the gossip, and we get unified around Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. Okay, this is great, right? This is, this is some good stuff, Paul. We, we hear what you're saying, but how do we do that? How do we get unified? Have you, have you seen our culture lately? Everybody's got an opinion, and, and it can be difficult to be unified around anything. In our divisive culture, Paul, how in the world are we supposed to get unified? And Paul says... I'm glad you asked. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out for only your own interest, but take an interest in others too. All right, now we're getting somewhere. This is some good practical advice. Sometimes you read scripture and and you maybe decipher the truth of what it means and you're like, okay, now how do I put this into my life? Paul's getting real practical for us. He says, if you want unity, if you want the unity that will make my joy complete, then you do so by being humble. You do so by thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more. If you want joy, if you want a better relationship with Jesus and with the people around you, learn to be humble. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He does not say that unity is achieved through snarky, unloving, and controversial social media posts. He does not say that unity is achieved through belittling or through gossip or abandoning a relationship at the first sign of trouble. He doesn't even say that unity and joy is found in conspiracy theories, Joe Biden, Donald Trump vaccines, or fill in the blank with whatever is making you mad today. None of those things will give you joy. Joyful unity, according to Paul, is only achieved through humility. In fact, here's kind of the big idea for today, and it's that unity comes through humility. Unity comes through humility. And if we're really honest, that's a lot easier said than done because we naturally tend to think of ourselves more highly than we should. It's part of who we are. 
Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Can Man Live Without God, recounts the story of Muhammad Ali flying on an airplane one day. And as they were flying, the, the pilot comes over the overhead speaker and says, all right, folks, we're about to enter into some moderate turbulence. I need you all to put your seatbelts on. And if you're a nervous flyer, you know that when a, a pilot comes online and, and says uh, that we're about to enter into some moderate turbulence, if you're a religious person, that's when you start praying. And, and so everybody complied with the pilot. They put their seatbelt on, except for Muhammad Ali. And the flight attendants, as they were walking the cabin, noticed that Ali didn't have his seatbelt on, and she said, would you please put your seatbelt on? And Muhammad Ali looked at her and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant, without missing a beat, looks back at him and she says, yes, Superman don't need no airplane either. All of us like to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But Paul says if we want joy, if we want unity with other people, if we want to cut through that divisiveness in our culture, then we have to learn to be humble. But it doesn't come naturally. And I won't put all the blame on you. I won't put all the blame on me. Part of it comes from the way in which we were raised. We were raised with the American dream. We, we were raised to climb our way to the top at the expense of others if that's what we have to do. We were raised to look out for number one before we can even think about looking out for anyone else. I can't worry about you because I have to worry about me, myself, and I. And we live in a culture that promotes selfies and self-driving cars and self-serve machines and self-help books and finding your true self. We're a culture obsessed with self. We love looking at ourselves and thinking of ourselves. And if we aren't aware of our natural inclination towards pride, we will feed it without even realizing it. See, pride is like an appetite. And the only way you get rid of an appetite is to kill it, not by continuing to feed it. Maybe you eat a meal and, and you think, oh, I'm not going to be hungry for days. And then what happens? Three or four hours later, you're hungry again. The only way to get rid of an appetite is to kill it. And so we have to kill our appetite for pride. And there's three things that John Weiss, preacher of Southland Church in Lexington, Kentucky, says feeds our pride without us even knowing it. Number one is pedigree. Pedigree is something that feeds our pride. It's the idea that where we come from and what we do matters. In our society, we, we think that the CEO is better than, better than the janitor. The celebrity is better than the commoner. And the, the rich person is better than the poor folk. It's the idea that what we do and who we are matters. It's our pedigree. It's where we come from. That's what we place importance on. And if you don't believe me, just think about the pressure for a good pedigree that we place on our children. We want our children to be the best. They got to be the strongest leader, the, the fastest athlete, and the best student in the classroom. I mean, do you remember there was probably a time when church and Jesus was the most important thing to your family, and, and you said, no matter what, we're going to always put Jesus first. And then little Timmy started playing sports. And it wasn't enough to just play for the local league during the week. Little Timmy had to be on the travel team, and not just any travel team. He had to be on that travel team, and he couldn't just be on that travel team. He had to be the best of that travel team. And what happens is little Timmy came to you one day, and he said, but mom, dad, what about church? And, and you said, I thought, I thought that was supposed to be the most important thing on Sundays. And, and you looked at him, and he said, yeah, Jesus and church, it's really important, but not if it messes with our pedigree. Not if it messes with who we want you to be and what will make us proud of you. And then little Timmy started looking for colleges and, and you said, oh, no, 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 you're not going to community college. 
you got to go to that school. you got to get that degree and get that job so you can hang out with those people. And once you've done that and you're hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that you will never be able to repay, well, then we will be proud of you and then we will have the pedigree that we've always wanted. Look, our desire for pedigree kills not only ourselves where we work too long and, and forget our family and our kids, but it kills our kids as well, putting impossible pressures on them and leaves us wanting to simply climb to the next rung in the ladder. And we will never be satisfied as long as we are seeking joy in our pedigree. And we want people to know that no matter what, we've made it in life. That's who we are. But Paul says, nope. Try humility. Don't worry about what other people think. Don't try to impress others, but rather serve them. Pedigree can feed our pride without us even knowing it. Second thing that feeds our pride is our priorities. A priority is anything we place ultimate value on. And for a lot of us, our priorities are our things, our stuff. Do you know that the average five-year-old has over 250 toys and the average eight-year-old now owns a cell phone? We love our stuff. We got to have the fancy house and the nice car and, 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 and the good job. We got to have a vacation home because if we have those things, then people will look at us and they'll say, man, I want that life someday. And we begin to tell ourselves that the more stuff we have, the more successful, the more powerful, the more rich, the more we have people's respect if we have more stuff, despite the fact that the average American household is $6,000 in credit card debt. And understand me, it's not just our stuff that we prioritize. A priority can be anything. It could be money, it could be status, it could be a relationship, it could be family, an identity, a job. And what you prioritize can lead to pride. And for a lot of us right now in our culture, we prioritize being right. And we will stop at nothing to make sure you know that I'm the smartest person in the room. We will stop at nothing to make sure that you know you're wrong, I'm right, I will demonize you, I will break the relationship, I will do whatever I have to do to make sure you know that I'm right. I will send you to hell if I have to do that, as long as you know I'm right. I mean, that's our culture. That's what happens every time you log on. We prioritize being right, and in the process, we forget about anybody else and anything else that's going on around us. And if anything other than serving others and Jesus is your priority, you will never find joy. Paul says we must shift towards loving others. We must not worry about our own priorities, but we must think about the priorities of others. We put it like this, don't just consider your own priorities, rather make other people your priority. So we got pedigree, we've got priorities, and number three, this might come as a shock to you, but the third thing that feeds our pride is pace. Pace, we're a busy people. Maybe you've heard the phrase, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, and truer words have never been spoken because when you're overly busy and you have no time for rest, then the focus is completely on you. And what ends up happening is you move so fast and you're going by everything so quickly that you lose sight of everything that's going on around you. You lose sight of what's going on in your friend's life. You lose sight of what's going on in your neighbor's life because you're moving so fast and you can't possibly have time to see what's going on. This is my struggle I take pride in working hard. I take pride in knowing that when I show up to a job, I will be one of the most hardworking people there. But at what cost? 
At what cost do I overburden myself? At what cost do I fill up my calendar? To miss bedtime and, and reading pout pout fish with my son? To have a lonely and a neglected wife? To never spend time with friends and neighbors? Keeping a busy schedule with no intentional time for rest is pride. It's pride because it's all focused on you. And it says my life and my agenda takes precedence over anything that you might have going on in your life. And when we run from place to place with Starbucks in one hand and our phone in the other, answering the latest text, the latest email, forgetting about the kids in the backseat or forgetting about the kids in the house, we communicate to the world around us that our schedule and our time and our life is most important. Never mind what's going on in your life. It's all about my life, and you need to understand that I'm a busy person, so if I'm giving you time, you must be special. So get out of my way, get out of my lane, or hit the gas because I got to go. I've tried to make it a personal practice in my life. Whenever I don't have time for something, I try to tell myself, well, I didn't make time for that. Because the truth is, what we make time for is what we prioritize. And if I have to tell my neighbor or my friend, I don't have time to help you, I don't prioritize them, and I'm not thinking of them ahead of myself. An over-busy schedule is pride. It's not thinking of others more highly than you should, nor does it allow you to look out for others. So Paul's been real practical. I mean, this is, this is good stuff for us. It, it's, it's about uh, checking our priorities. It's about slowing down and making sure that pedigree is not what drives us. He's been real practical for us. If we want unity, if we want the joy found in unity, then we practice humility. But why? Why humility? Well, before I answer that, let me recap. So far in verse 1, Paul told us that if we benefit from Christ, there's that if again, if we benefit from Christ, then complete my joy by, through unity. Complete my joy with unity. And you do that, verses 3 and 4, through humility. But why, Paul? Why are you telling us to be humble? Why are you telling the Philippian church to be humble in a culture that, that prized the social ladder, that knew the social ladder, and that wanted to climb the social ladder? Why are you telling them to think of themselves less? Why are you telling us to think of ourselves less? Why are you telling us to be humble, to not impress others? Why? It's really pretty simple. Because it's the way of Jesus. Paul tells us to be humble because it's the way of Jesus. And understand me, if you're watching today and you're looking to get something from Jesus or get ahead in life through Jesus, it will come in a way and require something that you never, ever thought of. See, as Paul ends this section of his letter, he ends by looking at the humility of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Notice, this is a thinking thing. It's an attitude. It starts in the mind. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God has elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Listen, y'all, if you're uh, wanting to find and follow Jesus, and if you're looking for joy, what we just read is the answer. This is the gospel in six verses. This is the glory, the magnitude, and the beauty of Jesus in one paragraph. This is humility embodied. One preacher said Jesus gave up everything he loved to save everyone he loved more. Let me say that again because I'm not sure you heard it. Jesus gave up everything he loved. Heaven, divine privileges, equality with God. He gave up everything he loved to save everyone he loved more. That's humility. That's what it means to lower yourself. That's what it means to not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but it means to lower yourself, to come down from heaven to earth so that we may live. When Max Lucado, uh, author and, and, and speaker, reflects on this phenomenon, he says, he says, you want to know the coolest thing about the coming of Jesus? The coolest thing of, uh, of the coming of Jesus was not that the one who played marbles with the stars gave it up to play marbles with marbles. It wasn't that the one who hung the galaxies gave it up to hang door jams to the displeasure of a cranky client who wanted everything yesterday but couldn't pay until tomorrow. The coming of Jesus wasn't so cool because in an instant he went from needing nothing to needing air and food, a tub of hot water and salts for his tired feet. And, and more than anything, he really just needed somebody, anybody who was more concerned about where he would spend eternity rather than when he, where he would spend Friday's paycheck. And it wasn't that he resisted the urge uh, to fry the two-bit self-appointed hall monitors of holiness who dared suggest that he was doing the work of the devil. It wasn't even uh, that he kept his cool while his dozen of best friends he ever had felt the heat and, and got out of the kitchen. And it wasn't that there, he gave no command to the angels who begged, just give us the nod, Lord, one word and these demons will be deviled eggs. And it wasn't that he refused to defend himself when, when blamed for every sin of every slut and sailor since Adam, or that he stood silent as a million guilty verdicts echoed in the tribunal of heaven and the giver of light was left in the chill of a sinner's night. It wasn't even that after three days in a dark hole, he stepped into the Easter sunrise with a smile and a swagger and a question for lowly Lucifer, is that your best punch? That was cool, incredibly cool. But you want to know the coolest thing about the one who gave up the crown of heaven for a crown of thorns? He did it for you. Just for you. And once you realize what he's done for you, once you realize how he died for you, once you realize what he gave for you and how he humbled himself for you, you can't help but pledge allegiance to him. Once that dawns on you and once that clicks in your brain, there's no other way to respond than to say, Jesus, you are Lord and I will follow you. And when you make that decision, you don't become prideful, you become joyful. You don't become self-centered, you become selfless. Because that's what your leader and your God has done. And if that's what he's done for you and me, then that's what you and I do for those who don't yet know him. Why do we strive for humility? We strive for humility because it's the way of Jesus. It's how Jesus saved humanity. It's how Jesus exercised his dominance and victory over the powers of the world. The strongest became the weakest and the highest became the lowest. Jesus gave up everything so that you and I could live. And it's our honor and our goal to imitate and reflect that same kind of love and humility 
to the world. That's where joy is found. It's found in imitating the humility of Christ. You want to navigate 2020? You want to get through the cultural divide that exists right now? Try humility. Look to Jesus, the one who was humble, who gave up heaven and came to earth so that you could live. Let go of your pedigree, check your priorities, and slow down. Don't consider yourself more important than others, but try humility. Try humility. Try to be like Jesus. Try to imitate Jesus, and you will find that there is joy in being humble. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you that he did not consider himself more important than us, but God, he left heaven and he came to earth. And when he came to earth, he died a criminal's death, but he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he resurrected, promising life to everyone who would believe in him. And so, God, I pray that each of us would be able to humble ourselves and that we would say, if this was good enough for you, God, it's good enough for us. We would humble ourselves, we would follow you, and we would love and care for others. Father, be with us as we go about our day today, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.